last week with Kevin teaching on creator, creature distinction. This week we're going to look at the image of God and can kind of continue that theme in creation and look at how that plays in effect um, for all that we're doing. Um, so if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 26 through 28 first. But before we do that, many of you were at Fall Retreat, and you heard Ryan O'Neill teach on the image of God, or Imago Dei, which is just means the image of God in Latin. Um, so I'm hoping that for some of you, you'll kind of already have a background knowledge of what this means to be made in the image of God. But for those of you who don't, we're going to kind of go over a basic idea of what that means before we uh, look at the implications that that has for us. But the three points that we're going to look at in this passage of Scripture as we go through tonight are going to be, first, we're going to look at the theology of Imago Dei, or the theology of being made in God's image. Second, we're going to look at the implications of being made in God's image. And third, we're going to look at the practice of being made in God's image. How does this affect what we do? But if you will, um, read with me now in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you will, before we do anything else, pray with me. God, we want to come to you and first say that we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we can know you. God, that we are not left blind to try to find our creator, but God, you have showed us in your word who you are, that we may know you. God, thank you for your grace to us. Lord, I pray that you'll use my words um, to maybe encourage someone tonight um, to bring glory to your name. God, I pray that you'll give us understanding of your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so first things first, in these verses that we see, we see that God created man in his own image. Male and female in the image of God for the glory of God. We've all heard this framework and kind of have an idea that this is a, something that happens in Scripture, but I don't think many of us truly understand what this really means or the implications that this has. Um, so let's start first by looking at the theology of what it means to be made in God's image. And so look back at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female in the image of God. What being made in God's image means in its most basic form is that we, in some form of another, resemble God. Whether it be through reason or morality, language, relationship, or creativity, God has given us characteristics of himself. The creator God of the universe thought of man in creation and said, this is who will represent me before all other creation. Do the mountains and the oceans and the galaxies and the trees and nature and the sunrises and all those things bring glory to God? Absolutely, but only mankind bears the image of God. Mountains and oceans and galaxies do not possess the same unity with God that we were created for. God's glory is shown more clearly through 
the people in this room than it is through the stars or through the sunrise or through whatever else in nature because nothing else bears the image of God directly in its character and in its nature. And so God created man with an honor that he gave to nothing else. We don't often understand this. We are quick to look at the stars. We're quick to look at the sunrise with wonders and praise and to sing the praises of God when we see something beautiful. But we're also quick to let the people around us slip by us without a second thought. We, we let the people from our work, from school, from our classes go by and we don't even think that they have any value. We don't even think to speak to them. But yet when we see something in nature, we, we stop, we're in awe, we fall to our knees and we praise God. But I want us to see that that should be happening with each and every one of us, with the people around us. On this topic, Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says that the entire world is a revelation of God, a mirror of his virtues and perfections. Every creature is in his own way and according to his own measure an embodiment of a divine thought. But among all creatures, only man is the image of God, the highest and richest revelation of God, and therefore head and crown of the entire creation. So in giving us his image, God made us distinct from all other creation. God made us unique in relation to all other things. Bavi explains in that quote that man was created as the richest revelation of God, meaning that we were created to show God's glory most clearly as compared to other parts of creation. And we were created to see God's glory most clearly in the people around us. So not only do we show God's glory ourselves, but we see God's glory around us and others. And so ultimately, when we see brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be motivated to praise God in an even greater way than when we see the beauty of the rest of creation. God's beauty is seen in each and every one of us and each and every one of his created people. But what else do we see in these verses about the creation of man? Uh, look back at verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Anthony Hokomo in his book, Created in God's Image, addresses the uniqueness of man's creation in that man is the only created thing in which there is divine counsel in the scriptures preceding his creation. Let us make man in our image. Now this is not to say that the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, were not involved in the creation of all things. They were. In the creation story, we see that the Spirit rose on the waters and that all things were created through the Son, the Word. We see that in John 1. But there is still significance in what Hokema points out. The creation of man is the only place in the book of Genesis that explicitly shows counsel between God before creation. And so for God, creating man intentionally with a purpose, he was creating man intentionally with a purpose, to bear the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when we think about bearing God's image or being made in the image of God, we're imaging the three-in-one, one-in-three God. We aren't just imaging the Father or just the Son or just the Spirit, but we're bearing the image of the unified triune God. But there's even more than just uniqueness and distinction that we look at when being made in the image of God. We also see that originally man was made pure and holy and faithful and as a good representation of God's image. Man was not created corrupt, but he was created clean. Man was created to be like God in that way, pure and clean, in the same way that God is holy, pure and clean. Hokema later in that same book addresses and says that man, therefore, as he came from the hands of the creator, was not corrupt, depraved, or sinful. He was in a state of integrity, innocence, and holiness. 
Whatever in human beings is evil today or perverted was not a part of man's original creation. At the time of his creation, man was very good. God created man in purity to reflect his glory and to bring praise to his name. Lastly, we see in these verses, in verse 26 and 28, that God created man and gave him a task to have dominion over the earth in order to bring glory to God. God created man to rule over the earth. God ultimately rules over all things, but God commissioned man and gave us a responsibility to rule over the earth and to rule over other parts of creation. He gave us authority over the rest of creation. This is a characteristic of God in which he allowed us to share with him, ruling authority um, over creation. And in giving us his image, he has gifted us much more than we could ever deserve. And so to kind of summarize the theology of being made in God's image, uh, John Piper says that the following conclusions may be drawn from the foregoing discussion, that man is in the image of God means that man as a whole person both physically and spiritually, is in some sense like his maker. Just what the nature of this likeness is, we are not told. But we are told what really matters. Even as sinners, we bear God's image. As a result of this image in us, we have dominion over all the earth, and we have a right to live out our days upon the earth. So God has given us his image. We've seen that clearly, and it's, it's a gift. It's a good thing. But what does that mean? What does that affect? What does that change in our lives today? How does that make me a different person today that I'm made in God's image? So let's look on and let's move into the implications of Imago Day. now that we have a better understanding of what being made in God's image means. So I want to look specifically at those implications in three ways, the first of which I want to look at intimacy, that God giving us his image made us unique for an intimate relationship with him unlike anything else. God created us to know him in a way that no other part of creation can. He made us in a way that we could truly know him and have a relationship with him. There's nothing else in creation that can have a relationship with God in the same way that we can. And that's a gift. So hear me again. The God of all creation created us to know him. He did not create us to know about him or to know of him, but he created us to know him. He did not create us out of obligation or out of necessity, but he created us out of love and out of a desire to make us for his glory. And we see this theme all over the Bible. God created man out of his own love for us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit poured out their love in creation and in the creation of man. And so we see such intimacy displayed in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. So if you would, turn a few pages and look at that with me. Starting in verse 1, this passage says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Intimacy. He blessed us and he named us. As a loving father to his son, he gave us his name and gave us his blessing. This did not stop with Adam and Eve either. If you look again at verse 3, Seth continued on in the likeness and image of God who is made in the likeness and he continued on in the likeness and image of Adam, who is made in the likeness and image of God. And so with this understanding, we can be sure that God's gift of his image was not a one-time deal that stopped with Adam and Eve, but it moves on through every generation to each and every one of us. Every man, woman, boy, and girl bears the image of their creator. He knows them and graciously gifts them with his likeness. 
Each and every one of us in this room bears the image of God. Creator God, Almighty God, has given us a piece of himself that we can know him and resemble him. What a great gift. And so listen to the words of Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. It says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Who are we that God takes the time to care for us? Who are we that God takes the time to pay attention to us and share his image with us? God doesn't we don't deserve for God to care for us and yet he nurtures us we don't deserve for God to pay attention to us and yet he knows us intimately he shows us compassion and grace and crowns us with glory and honor not because of anything to do with our character but with everything to do with his own character God is merciful and gracious abounding in steadfast love you want to know God you can because he has created you to know him and given you his image you want to have a relationship with God you can because he's offered mercy to you and he created you for intimacy with him. That is unique. The God of the universe who is almighty has created us for intimacy with him. We sometimes can grow numb to this because we see it every day in God's word. We see it every week in this building. We hear of God's faithfulness. We hear of how he cares for us. But the almighty God of the universe has made himself low so that he can know us. That is unique. And he has given us his image that we can know him. Hear even the words of Psalm 139, 13 and 14. You formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In this picture of creation and God giving us his image, we see his wonderful works and we see his wonderful character. God designed us intimately. And by giving us his image, he bestowed on us a blessing that no other created thing has. He has shown us that he cares for us simply by creating us the way that he did. The God of the universe designed us for intimacy with himself. I say that over and over again. He did not plan to cast us aside. He does not desire and rejoice when we rebel. But he made us in his own image. And he bestowed on us a, cre a connection with our creator and gave us a tie to the almighty, infinite God of the universe. We are the lowly creature. He is almighty, infinite creator, and yet we bear his image. He is not distant like he deserves to be. We don't deserve to know him. But even though there's nothing about us that makes us worthy to know him, he is drawn near to us. He makes himself knowable to us. And through gifting us his image, he graciously gifts each of us with an idea that we have a creator. He designed us for intimacy with himself and then offers for us to know him. When we truly think about God's glory and we truly think about ourselves, we get a sliver of an idea of how absurd that is. When I think about my own sinfulness, when I think about the brokenness of my own heart, and I think about his holiness and his goodness and his purity, that seems absurd. There is no way I deserve to know a God that is glorious when I know my own sin. To move out of this intimacy portion hear the words of David Platt when he says, just think God has created you and me in his image. What does that mean? 
you and I are created in a sense like God. Obviously, we are not God. We are not little gods, but we are created in such a way that we have the capacity to relate to God, to be in relationship with God in a way that trees and oceans and mountains and animals cannot. You and I are created uniquely in God's image with the capacity to know him, enjoy him, relate to him, walk with him, worship him. And in this, it's not just you and me. It's every single person created with equal dignity, with equal beauty in this way, in the image of God. He continues, see your life in this way. You were created uniquely with the capacity to know and love and enjoy and worship and relate to God all day long. You are not intended to live a life separate from God or distant from God. You are created, I was created, to know the God of the universe, the God who created everything around us in the world. You and I can know him, worship him, can hear him, and can speak to him. Every single person of all nations, all tribes, all races, all languages, created uniquely in God's image to know him, enjoy him, relate to him, worship him. They were created uniquely for intimacy with God. But when we think about the implications of being made in God's image, it goes further than just intimacy that he offers us. In the light of this intimacy he offers us, he also offers us true pleasure by being made in his image. So we were created to find our pleasure in God. Our joy, our hope, our peace are found in God and God alone. That was not an accident. This is how we were designed. We were created to find joy in God. We just saw that we were created for intimacy with God and that God offers that to us. So it only naturally makes sense when we think about um, that when you do not have intimacy with God, when you do not know him, that you are left feeling like you don't have what you were created for. You're left feeling empty. You're left feeling like you aren't complete. You're left searching for something else to try to find pleasure. We run to anything that this world has to offer, and yet we're not pleased. Why? Because we were created in God's image. They were, we were created to be satisfied in that which satisfies God. What satisfies God? Well, when we think about this, we know that before creation was, God was there. He was not created, but he has been since eternity past. And But was God unhappy before creation? No, he, that wouldn't make him God. If he was dissatisfied in himself, that wouldn't make him God. But God was fully satisfied in himself. Father, Son, and Spirit in union with one another, fully satisfied before creation. So when we truly think about this, we can conclude that if we are created in God's image and created with desires like God, that we are created to be fully satisfied in God and God alone in the same way that he is fully satisfied in himself. And so that would only make sense that the fullness of joy that we have would come from knowing God. He alone satisfies what we were designed to find our pleasure in. But I'm not just saying this to you from my own perspective. This is all over God's word. And so you don't have to turn there. Uh, I'm just going to read you some of the Psalms that uh, kind of show this and highlight this. Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 16:11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 33:12. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 43:4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. My soul thirsts for you. He is all that I need. He is what I seek. God, to know you, what a gift. 
God my exceeding joy is how it refers to him. My heart is glad in him. In him there is fullness of joy. To know God is to know pleasure. We seek pleasure day after day, but we are created to find joy in knowing God. We are created in his image specifically for relationship with him. And without that, we are empty. But with him, he fills our every void. We have a desire for pleasure that is eternally deep, that can only be filled by an eternal God. And yet, no matter how many things of this world we throw into that eternal void, it'll never fill it up. But the only one who can fill it up is God himself. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he said that man was made in the image of God and nothing will satisfy man but God in whose image he was made. So with this in mind, let's look at the last implication of being made in God's image. And in giving us his image, God has given us a great responsibility. So intimacy, pleasure, and responsibility. So when we think about the intimacy which God has created us, it only leads to the idea that there's responsibility that comes with that as well. God is holy, righteous, pure, just, mighty, infinite. And yet he's gentle, kind, loving, near, and knowable. This is the God whom we are meant to represent. This is the God whose image we bear. Every single one of us bears the image of this God. There's some weight to that. The last two points are pretty light, pretty exciting when we think, Wow, the God of creation wants to know me? That's exciting. The God of creation wants to give me true joy? That's exciting. But do we think about responsibility in that same way? We really should. The God of creation trusts us with a responsibility to bring glory to his name. But there is some weight to that. We have a role to play in bringing God glory, and that is no small task. But when we think about this responsibility, that should drive us to live pure, holy, and upright lives. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and let's see what God has to say about the responsibility with which we are given. Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so when we read this verse, we see that God takes seriously an offense against his image, an offense against his people. Look at the verse again. I mean, it says that losing your life is a pretty serious consequence in my, in my book. Um, and it says that for those that have taken the life of one of his image bearers, that that the consequence is that they will lose their lives as well. And so when we think about this on a, a smaller basis, we see that we have a responsibility to treat people in such a way that God is exalted. The way we talk about others, the way we interact with others, the way we think about others should all be influenced first and foremost by the idea that those people, each and every one of them, are made in the image of God. And that it brings glory to God when we think honoring, encouraging, uplifting things, when we say honoring, encouraging, uplifting things. But when we do things that hurt them, when we tear them down, when we think things that are evil, those things not only hurt those people, but they hurt our king and they hurt God himself. So being made in the image of God leaves us with a great responsibility to reflect God with honor, purity, and holiness. In the same way that when I see an image of the Grand Canyon, I see a representation of the Grand Canyon that's meant to give me a glimpse of the beauty of what that is. In the same way, it's our responsibility to bear such an image of God that those around us are able to get a glimpse of the glory of God and get a glimpse of God's love. In the same way that we often feel like we know someone just because we've seen pictures of them, through, whether it be through mutual friends or in some form or another, 
those that do not know God are supposed to feel as if they have got an understanding of his majesty when they see us, when they see us representing his glory, when they see us living pure, upright, and holy lives. They should have an understanding, okay, this is who God is. But how can they see God if we don't walk in holiness? How can they see God if we don't walk in purity? How can they see God if we look just like the rest of the world? They can't. But this is our responsibility, to bear the image of God in holiness and to walk with him in such a way that the lost world sees his glory. How do we walk in holiness and reflect one that we do not know? The only way to follow out our responsibility to live pure and holy and upright lives is to first walk in intimacy with God. By dwelling in his word and seeking him in prayer, we are actively fighting for our own sanctification. How do we expect to act more like Christ if we do not become more like Christ, if we do not know more of Christ? We've been made in the image of the king. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Each and every one of us in this room are image bearers. How gracious is our God to give us such a rich gift of his own image. This comes with a longing for intimacy with our creator, a deep joy from knowing him, and a great responsibility to represent him well. But what do we do in light of these truths? Okay, so we know that we're made for intimacy with him. We know that he brings joy unlike anything else. We know that we have a responsibility. But practically, what do we put our hands to? What are the tangibles of this? What do we practice? And so third, let's look at the practice of Imago Dei or the practice of being made in God's image. And the first thing I want to point out, I'm going to look at two applications. The first one I want to point to walking in unity with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 2.11 says that God shows no partiality. We know that God is not a God of racism or favoritism. He is not one that looks on men with greater joy than women or vice versa. He does not look on a certain race or skin tone with greater joy than another. He does not look on citizens of a certain country or citizens that align with a certain political party with greater joy than one another. He shows no partiality. Romans 2.11 God does not judge men and women by worldly standards that we judge men and women by. But he looks on them in light of his law, of which we have all fallen short, of which we all deserve his wrath, of which we all have not upheld. And then he looks on them on the basis of whether or not they know his son, Jesus Christ. And God's one requirement for his eternal favor is faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so with all this in mind... It should be the people of Jesus that lead the way in bringing unity. It should be the people of Jesus that lead the way in uniting people. But sometimes, especially today, it seems like a lot of the times the church is who is bringing division even more so than the rest of the world. But this should never be the case. The church should be filled with those who welcome and love people. And I'm not saying that to the neglect of throwing out our standards or to disregard holiness or to compromise our beliefs. But as Kevin often says, we in the church should be the least shockable people in the world. We are the people that know our own depths of sin better than anyone else because we have known our depths of sin so well that we have said, I cannot bear them on my own, but I need someone else to take care of them, and we've given them to Jesus. So why do we banish people that walk into our doors with issues, or why do we banish people that walk into our doors with controversy? And so church, I'm urging you to be people of peace to care for people, body and soul, to love those that have different opinions than you, to talk with people and to respect them because they are made in the image of God. Knowing that each and every one of us is made in the image of God should draw us together in unity. Too quickly we talk 
instead of listen. Too quickly I talk instead of listen. James 3.9 says that out of the same mouths we praise the Lord and curse those that are made in his likeness. This should never be the case for the people of God. We should not be praising God on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and going through the rest of our, the rest of our weeks uh, cursing his people. Too quickly I seek to prove points or to change opinions instead of knowing people, respecting people, and thinking about people being made in God's image. And so I'm not advocating for letting people wallow in, clear, in clearly sinful things. Because no, the most loving thing you can do for a person in sin is to urge them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But on matters that are not sin issues, let us remember that each and every person that we fight, spit at, or tear down is a person made in God's image, made for his glory. Let us not be people who separate, but in the words of Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, let's live peaceably amongst all. Let us not be those that stir up strife or try to create divisions, but let us be those people that wipe away tears and wrap wounds. In the image of God, he created them. Let's remember that before we act. And so that's my first application. Let's walk in unity with one another. And then next, I want to speak on contentment. How does being made in the image of God relate to contentment, you might ask. But I just want to ask a few questions that I think a lot of us have to ask ourselves. We ask, why am I so discontent all the time? Why do I constantly wish I had different circumstances? Why do I constantly wish for a supposed better life? Why am I so discontent with where I am? Let's look back at what we just learned for a second. What we saw that we were created to reflect God, to point people to his glory and to represent him. We saw that God has been gracious enough to us to give us intimacy with himself. And we've seen that true pleasure comes only from knowing him and walking in his will. We have seen that we are created with a responsibility to have dominion over the earth and to rule over other parts of creation to the glory of God. So we ask again, why does it feel like no matter what, I'm never content? No matter what, I'll always want more, want something different, want change. I think I can say with confidence that a lack of contentment comes from a lack of intimacy. When we are not dwelling in the presence of the one who brings us joy, it only makes sense that we wouldn't be satisfied. We do not often see this as the reason for our lack of contentment, and so we begin to grasp at straws for anything that this world has to offer. We think that we can run to anything that this world says is good, that others say has brought joy to them, that has brought pleasure to them, and think that that'll fill us up, but we still just keep throwing it in that eternal void that will never be filled up outside of intimacy with God. We start trying to think that maybe it's something that I'm doing that's wrong. Maybe I'm in the wrong major. Maybe I have the wrong friends. Maybe I'm in the wrong relationship. It must be that there's just something wrong with me or wrong with my life. I just haven't found what I'm missing yet. That's the problem. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know that there's no worldly answer for your lack of contentment. You could gain the whole world and never be content if you don't know the king. You could win the lottery tomorrow, but until you dwell in the presence of God day after day, you'll be searching for answers. We need not look to the world for answers to divine problems. Intimacy with God the Father, intimacy with Jesus Christ, intimacy with his Holy Spirit, this and this alone is that which can bring contentment. This is the only way to know the will of God for your life, as Kevin taught us last week. So we are created in the image of God. We ultimately are designed to be satisfied only in that which satisfies God. And we see that God is fully satisfied in himself, like we talked about earlier. Before the creation of the world, it was only God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
only God and he was fully satisfied. He needed nothing else. He was content. This is our answer as well. We can be content in him. We were designed to be content with him. We were designed in his image to experience the joy of salvation through him. He is all that we need. But how do we know him? Well, we know him through his word. He gives us direct access to the king through his word. He shows us who he is. We know him through prayer. We can speak with him. When, think about intimacy. We can talk with him. We can know him. He hears us. We can do that through community. The people of this world bear God's image. The people of the church bear God's image in an even fuller way because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. We can know him more intimately through his people. So ultimately, we've seen that man was made to worship God and bring him glory. All things were created good to bring God glory and honor and praise. God set up this world with rules that bring us joy and bring him glory. And if we communion with God, we'll see that God's glory and our joy go hand in hand. Why is this? Because we were made for it. This world, these people were made to honor God. They were made to sing his praise, and this gives life. We were not made for ourselves, and when we think about ourselves, this begins to make sense. When we serve ourselves, act in, act in selfishness, pursue sin, pursue greed, we are left feeling empty. Why? Because we were not made for ourselves. We were not made for what the world tells us will bring joy, but we were made to find joy in much more than this. We are created to honor the one whose image we bear. The same one who gave us his image has made himself known to us. This is such good news. God of all gods has made himself known to us. How great of a joy that that gives us. And yet this whole message feels incomplete. It feels like there's something missing. And it feels like we've left something out. We're glossing over something. You may be thinking to yourself, now Brooks, that's all good and well, but you've forgotten something. You left out the fact that we rebelled, we sinned, we fell short, we aren't pure and clean like we were created to be. We don't carry out our responsibilities like we were meant to. We don't always look for joy in God and not this world. There's a lot of times I look for joy in this world. We don't always feel near to God. When we talk about who God is, I don't feel like a very good picture of him. And if you were to say these, you'd probably be right. Because that's true. We have fallen short, every single one of us. We've broken God's image. We don't reflect him in a way that is honoring and pure and good. We look at Genesis 1 and we see that God graciously gave us so much, that he cared for us. He made us to know him. He showed us what an intimate relationship with him could bring and what it was like. He showed us where true pleasure was found. He trusted us with a task to rule over creation. He gave us good things, more than we could ever deserve and more than we could ever want. But then we look at Genesis 3 and we see that we threw it all away. We rebelled. We took a pure image of God and we made it broken. Why? We were tempted and told that we could be like God if we just took this fruit and we forgot that we had already been given his image. We wanted to be like God and thought that his image was too little. And wanting to be like God, we tainted his image and broke our representation of him. But yet here's what doesn't make sense and here's the good news. God cared for us, and we rebelled. But what does God do now? He cares for us. God made us to know him, and we rebelled. But what does God do now? He knows us. God showed us true joy, and we rebelled. But what does God do now? He gives us true joy. But how? How could someone do this? We've broken it. We've cut ourselves off. We've separated ourselves from him. There's no way we deserve that. 
It's only possible through the one that bears the image of God without brokenness and without blemish. It's only possible through the man Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the perfect and true image of God. In him all things hold together. He was and is the image bearer that we could never be for ourselves. He lived the life that we could not live and took the wrath that we deserved from God. He died the death that we deserved for our rebellion, and he took every ounce of payment from God that we had earned for ourselves. He rose from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and proving that he had conquered sin for us once for all on the cross. And he restored the image that we had broken. He is the perfect image of God that we have fallen short of. He unifies and he satisfies. He brings unity to where we have brought hostility. He brings contentment to where we have brought grumbling. But more than just this, he is restoring broken, but more than just restoring broken things in this world, he saves the broken people of this world. He offers us true and restored access to God through his sacrifice on the cross. How can we be content? How can we bring unity? By dwelling in God's presence. How do we do this? Through faith in Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, the one who broke down the dividing wall of hostility and who tore the veil that kept God's people from seeing his glory. The one who's, he is the one who's making all things new. Our broken representation of God is being restored through Jesus Christ. So we see that God created us and gave us life, and we rebelled. But what does God do now? He gives eternal life to all who believe in his son, Jesus. God trusted us with a task to rule over the earth, and we rebelled. But what does God do now? He trusts us with the task of taking the news of his perfect image bearer, Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth. This is good news. Won't you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you um, for all that you have done for us, the way that you have given us good gifts, the way that you have given us your image. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that has given himself on the cross, risen from the dead, that we may be reconciled back to you. Thank you that he is the perfect image bearer that we can never be. God, that he has represented you perfectly. And God, that if we trust in him and believe in him, we will have salvation and we will be saved from our sins. God, thank you. Uh, for loving us, for caring for us, for us, God, for creating us for intimacy with you and for allowing us to know you. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.